Well, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm the worship pastor here, and I am so jazzed that we get to study the Word of God together this morning. But before we dive in, I just want to say again, Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. Thank you for being here this morning and joining us. That's a great way to lead your family. We're so glad that you're here. I got to give a personal shout out to my dad, who set such a good uh, father, godly example for me in my life. Happy Father's Day, Dad. I love you. And we are going to jump in. We're in a series called Family Dynamics. And as you just saw in that bumper video, the world has a lot to say about family, has a lot to say about the roles of men and women, and God's word has something different to say. We've been saying that that culture speaks loudly, but God's word speaks with authority, and we have to ask ourselves, are we going to trust and believe what this says, no matter how it feels in our context? So this morning, we're going to be talking about dads and, and husbands and what our role is that God has designed. It's fitting on, on Father's Day. Last week, Pastor Tom brought us a great message talking about moms and talking about wives and how God has designed them to live. And we're going to focus this morning on what God has for men. First, I want to make sure you're all with me. If you're excited and ready to study the Bible, just give me a big amen. 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 God's word is alive. It's active. My big idea this morning is that when men love and lead, the family flourishes. When men love and lead, the family flourishes. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we believe your word is true. We believe it is holy. We believe it is profitable. And so we bow beneath it, God, and we, we want to learn and study. So would you give us hearts, soft hearts, that respond to your word? Would you convict us? Would you mold us and shape us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 25 through 28. We're also going to have it on the screen. We ask sometimes that you stand during the word or the reading of the word of God to honor it. So if you're able to stand, would you do that with me? Starting with verse 25. Here we go. Husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You can go ahead and be seated. The first point this morning is that men are to love and lead their wives. In fact, all of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is telling us how to walk in love. And now he turns his attention to husbands. Let me just ask first, what comes to your mind when you think of love? Well, what comes to your mind? Do you think of a love story, maybe Romeo and Juliet? Or if we have romantic fans out there, maybe you think of The Notebook, Noah and Allie. What comes to your mind when you think of love? Our culture has all kind of different things to say about love. There's four primary Greek words in the Bible that are used to explain love. And they each have a little bit different, uh, I would say, emphasis. And this word is agape. This is agape love. It's the same love that's used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Agape love is 
a awesome, big God love. And, and rather than give you a definition, I just want to bring some descriptors here on the screen to say what agape love is. Agape love is less to do with passion. It's not void of passion, but it's less to do with passion, and it's more to do with commitment. Agape love, it's not just of the heart, but it's also of the mind. It chooses, chooses love. Agape love is self-denial for the sake of another. Agape love is self-sacrificing. Think Jesus on the cross. So husbands, agape your wives. Sounds a little promiscuous, actually, doesn't it, when you say it like that? Husbands, agape your wives. How are we going to do that, men? Well, let me just suggest the first thing that you need to do is when you wake up, you need to get on your knees and ask the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to do these things. Because it's not in our first nature. My first instinct is to think about myself. And maybe a lot of you can relate to that. But loving my wife in this way that that God is telling us to, it's not only to think about her first, but it's to die to myself, to die to what I want. And that is different than the world talks about love, isn't it? Emily and I do premarital counseling sometimes, and one of the questions we ask is, why do you want to get married? And usually they say, we love each other, and it's great, and, and we just have some fun with it. But we usually say, well, marriage is choosing to die to yourself. It's no longer about you anymore. Our text goes on to say that Christ gave himself up to sanctify her, and to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, I may have lost a couple people here. This is a little confusing. I think it is. So don't feel bad if you got lost in this text. Let's take a moment to understand, because Paul has shifted from talking about husbands to now he's talking about Christ. He's talking about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Obviously, a husband cannot sanctify his wife. I have no ability to cleanse Emily from her sins, right? Husbands can't do that. Don't try to do that. Paul's talking about what Jesus Christ has done for his church. Another interesting thing I think here is the word Rhema is used, R-H-E-M-A. Whenever you see word in Scripture, it's usually one of two Greek words, logos, which is the written word of God, and rhema, which is the spoken word of God. So what Paul is saying here is cleansing her by the washing with water through the spoken word of God. I, I find that interesting, and so I dug a little deeper. Rhema means utterance, and there's some different views theologically of, of what people believe with rhema. Some, some churches and denominations believe that rhema means when the Holy Spirit gives me a word, not only is it equal to the written word of God, in some cases it supersedes the written word of God. And I want to be very clear, at Fox Valley Church, our first value is the preeminence of God's word, so nothing, nothing can stand against this. If one of us says something that's not in this Bible, do not listen, right? We stand on the word of God that's unchanging, but we do want to press in to when the Spirit speaks to us. Just this past week, I was in the parking lot, and someone came up, and I I sensed I should go talk to them, and, and the Lord gave me a word for that person almost right away. And I shared it with them, and I prayed with them, and it was this huge uh, blessing in this sweet, tender moment. But we cannot stray from the written word of God. But here, the word rhema is used, and 
us, like a lot of other evangelical circles, believe that rhema is just uh, it's a preaching of God's word. It's an audible telling of what this says. It's sharing the gospel. So this word rhema is used, and what Paul is saying is that cleansing can happen from being under the authority and teaching of the word of God. And since the work of Jesus on the cross comes to us through the word of God, it can be said that we're washed with water through the word. He goes on to say, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, it means Jesus is going to present us perfect. And this morning, I just, I just wanted to share, God makes it clear that there's only one way to go to heaven, and it's through Jesus. The only way to get to the Father is through me. That's what Jesus said. And, and the Bible makes it really, really clear on, on what to do. If you want to be saved, Right? It says that if you, conf- if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. What that means is if you deny yourself, say, I can't do this on my own. I've sinned against a holy, righteous God. I want to submit to a Savior to save me, to rescue me. And, and if you pray that, there's no magic word. God looks at the heart. But if you pray that, you will be saved. And I would love to talk to you about that, to come alongside of you. We as a church would love to come alongside you. There's a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a famous, famous preacher, and he says this. He says, when he, meaning when God presents her, the church, right? When, when he presents the church to himself with all the principalities and powers and all the potentates of heaven, looking on at this marvelous thing, and scrutinizing and examining her, there will not be a single blemish. There will not be a spot upon her. The most careful examination will not be able to detect the slightest speck of unworthiness. That is what God has done for you and me. There will be no blemish. If you've lost loved ones who are suffering, who are struggling, there's no blemish. They're perfect. They're in God's presence and they're perfect, not just the physical blemish, but the spiritual blemish. When God looks at you on judgment day, he will see Jesus in your place. Amen? Amen. And we can hope hope in that. So husbands, you cannot cleanse your wives, right? This is what Paul is saying Jesus Christ has done and only he can do. But, but, you can help your wives flourish. And you can do your best to represent Jesus Christ. How? How? Well, I want to suggest to take interest in your wife's spiritual needs and do everything in your power to promote her holiness. Take interest in your wife's spiritual needs. And I have a few examples here. You see the first one already. How do you take interest in your wife's spiritual needs? Well, you pray with her and not just at the dinner table, right? (laughs) You can pray at dinner. That's good. But really, really pray with your wife. Pray with her. It's simple, but it's, it's so valuable. Another one is set time aside to converse about deep spiritual matters. How often do you sit down with your wife, husbands, do you sit down with your wife and you just ask them, how are you doing spiritually? Like, what, what, what is God teaching you right now? How can I pray for you? Are you, are you encountering God in this season of your life? I get it. It's hard, right? After dealing with kids and work and everything's so busy, you just want to sit in front of the TV. But take some time. Set aside times, husbands, to talk to your wives about these things. Another one is encourage her to have a mentor and or an accountability partner. I've learned 
over some years of marriage that I can't be the one to say everything, right, (laughs) as a husband. Husbands, you know this. There are some things that other people are going to have to speak truth into your wife because you just can't say everything. There are things I've tried to say, and then someone else has said it, and my wife's received it from them. Just there's, there's a different dynamic about having a, a spiritual mentor, another woman speaking in to her life. It's so valuable. Another one I put is take her to church. Take her to church and be on time. Be on time. God wants to, to be with the body of Christ, be with the family of Christ, and to encounter Him in a unique way. And the services from the very, very beginning are meant to help you do that and to see God more clearly. I'm thankful for husbands who are here this morning. You know, sadly, Father's Day is one of the least attended Sundays of the year, but I'm glad that you've made it a priority to come here this morning, to be here right? Self-denial. You could be on a golf course right now. You could be out boating, but you're in church with your family, and I'm encouraged by that. Peter, or excuse me, Paul goes on to say, I don't want to skip the very last verse here. It says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I don't have time to unpack more of that. It's pretty self-explanatory. But Peter, Peter goes on to say some different things about this. You can turn to 1 Peter 3 if you have it. Uh, But before we get to this verse, I I want you to hear me out. Uh, Pastor Tom talked about verses 1 through 6 last week. 1 through 6. And Peter is trying to give instructions uh, for women how to live, uh, do their role, fulfill their role, their godly ordained role. And and Pastor Tom joked about how offensive, right, the passage is in our culture. Well, this one is even more offensive, right? Right? This one's even harder. That guy saved the hard one for me here, but that's okay. This is the word of God, and so I'm going to turn here, and you see it on your screen. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I like that first line. I think that first line is beautiful. That word that says live there means dwell. It's saying don't be roommates with your wife. Dwell with her. Be with her. And be with her in an understanding way. Y'all, I got to admit, I was convicted about that. I was convicted because I've realized as I was studying God's word, and I always want to submit myself under God's word, right? If I'm going to preach, it's like, how am I doing with these things? And And I realized, I don't think I'm very understanding. Like, I have this way of, of fairness of what should happen, and, and my expectations, I think, can be a burden. And when things don't go the way I think they should go, because I know what's best, I get, I get disappointed. And I put this, whatever it manifests itself in, ugliness, a, a, a quickness toward my wife or my kids, So I've been thinking about this. I actually told Emily, I said, you know, you need to call me out. If I'm not being understanding, I got to change that. I got to be understanding and sympathize and assume the best and try to seek to know what you've been through. Here's what this could maybe look like practically for you to understand, to dwell with your wife and be understanding. It's you get home from a long day of work. Work is hard. it's, It's stressful. You've taken on more responsibility and you're doing so much and you come home from a long day, a lot of hours of work, and you, and you try to get into your house, but there's a child lock on the door, and you can't get in. So you knock on the door, and you have to wait 60 seconds, 90 seconds. Of course, it feels like 10 minutes. 
And when your wife finally opens the door, she's already running away. So she doesn't, she doesn't look at you or give you a hug or a kiss. You just look at her back. And the first instinct you have is, am I not appreciated in what I've done today? Like, I'll, I want to be engaged. I, I want you to tell me you love me and you're glad I'm home. Being understanding in some ways is sucking that up and saying, hey, how can I serve you? How are you doing? How has your day been? What can I do for you? Man, I, I wish I did that more. And I, I'm committed to doing that more. I, I love that first line. I think it's such a good word and such a good thing, even husbands, to just go home and ask your wives, how am I doing in this area? Am I understanding? I think that would be a great conversation. The same Greek word here of week is used in Matthew 26, 41. I just wanted to make sure we understood what the, the text was actually saying in Greek, just a literal kind of translation. So in Matthew 26, 41, Jesus is with a couple disciples in Gethsemane, and he says, be alert and pray, lest you fall into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This idea of weakness is, is often used as us, as believers in our flesh, when we don't rely on the spirit. So a, a translation for us is to show honor to the, to the woman as being more feeble and with less strength. That's what the text is saying for us to do. Now, much debate and much speculation has gone on about this text. It doesn't sit well, right? It, it just doesn't feel good to so many women. And so I sat down with four or five women this week, the past two weeks actually, and I just had a conversation with them about this to seek to understand how they feel, how they've processed this in different ways. And, and one of the things that, that kind of came out in my study and this is fascinating, I hope you grasp this, is that in Peter's original audience, the people who would have heard this, the men who would have heard this, verses one through six, would have been sitting there nodding. Yes, of course, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Yes, of course, this is what happens. If you study your, your Old Testament and some of the traditions and patterns that happened and oftentimes went in ungodly ways, women were very much vulnerable and subjected in different ways. I'll just give you a quick brutal example. If, if a wife was caught having an adulterous relationship, the husband could murder her and it was okay. It was right. And if the vice versa happened, if the husband was caught, the woman could do nothing. That's just one brutal example of how women were in more vulnerable positions. And so the men hearing this would have been like, yes, of course that's true. Of course you need to submit to me. But when verse 7 comes, it's not the women whose heads would have been turned upside down. It's the men. Because Paul then says, well, or sorry, Peter then says, wait, 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 wait. Live with your wife. Dwell with your wife in an understanding way. We think of, of weakness as bad, and I know it's going to be really, really hard for you to disassociate that. I know that's going to be hard, but don't think of it as bad. Think of it as vulnerable. Particularly, right, we know that women, as I just said, were more vulnerable back then, but even today, you can look at statistics, people being trafficked, they're more often women than men. And that's why I love what our partner ministries are doing, right? Refuge for Women, we just heard about it. They're helping these women, and it shows God's hearts for the vulnerable, Throughout all of Scripture, God shows His heart for the vulnerable. In the orphan care, replanted ministry, God has a heart, and we should too. And what the text is saying is, you need to treat them 
delicately, like a beautiful, delicate treasure. That's how I interpret this. So that's the first thing I just wanted to point out is that don't think of weakness as bad. The second thing I want to say is just notice, just notice that there's some different views on this, but just notice the text doesn't actually say that wives are weaker, but it says that husbands are to treat them as if they're weaker. And for me, that's all I need to know. I can jump ahead to what does the application mean for me? It means I need to treat my wife, be delicate with her, understand her. And when this is done, when you husbands care for your wife, when you honor her and you treat her as something so valuable, it is a beautiful, beautiful picture. I've seen it both ways. This is a beautiful thing. When we do what God's called us to do as husbands and wives, it's so rich, it's so good. And yet... And yet, the world we live in today can't stand headship. They can't stand submission. And again, are we going to trust God's plan or trust what sounds good to us? I wanted to take a couple definitions here and contrast the world's view and God's view. The first is with headship. As I was studying headship, worldly headship says, here are the things I want you to do for me. Godly headship says, I'm accountable before God, so I must love and serve you. That's big. One day, husbands, God is going to ask you. He's not going to ask your wife. He's going to ask you, how did you lead your family? And whatever words he's going to use, right? Worldly submission. Worldly submission says you're a slave to another. You're a slave to another person. You have to do everything they want. But godly submission says, I am trusting God's plan to be protected and provided for. I'm trusting God's plan. Even if it doesn't make sense or feel good, I believe God's word. If we want our families to flourish, it starts in the marriage, right? I don't know about you, but I want my marriage to show the glory and the greatness and the love of God. And that's what God has intended for marriage, right? That that non-Christians would look at a Christian marriage and say, wow, the way he loves her, that's how God feels about me, right? That's the purpose of marriage. I want to give another little assignment here. These are good. These are great assignments, right? So husbands, this week, here's, here's an assignment. Ask your wife, how can I do a better job of showing agape love to you? How can I do a better job showing love to you? Just have that conversation. You know, and wives, if you want to participate, I would encourage that too. Then go back to your husbands and say, hey, how can, I, how can I do a better job of submitting to you in the way that God's called me to? How can I support you? How can I respect you better? I mean, these are amazing conversations that should be happening in our homes. It starts with the marriage, right? And then it, it teeters down from there. And so I want to shift. It is Father's Day, and I do want to hit on this, this relationship with kids and how dads play a big relationship. That's what part of headship is, is parenting and raising children. It's a natural extension. So if you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, we're just a few verses past where we were earlier. Julian is going to be preaching next week, and he's going to touch on verses 1 through 3, but I'm jumping to verse 4 where it talks about fathers. It says as fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. My second point this morning is that men are to love and lead their children. Obvious, right? 
but that's okay because we're going to keep going a little bit deeper. What Paul brings us into in this chapter is he starts with a negative thing, right? A negative thing, a negative action. Don't do this, but do this. Avoid this, but then he develops a positive action out of it. Some of your translations maybe say exasperate. That's been like my favorite word of the week as we've been with our kids, you know? It says, fathers, don't exasperate your kids. I'm like, kids, you're exasperating your dad, you know? It's just been a fun word that Emily and I have been using, but what it means is to lead your kids to kind of unfair, cruel behavior or or to give cruel and unfair uh, rules and stuff that would provoke them and lead them to anger. So I just want to ask dads who are here today, do you provoke your kids to anger? Do you exasperate your kids? Maybe you do have anger issues, and you need to get that fixed, right? Because it's going to be contagious. It's going to pass down to your kids. Maybe it's not so much anger, but you have this, this expectation. Like I was talking about earlier, this, this understanding, a lack of understanding. So you have these expectations on your kids, and, and it just it's tiresome. You know, y'all, a lot of y'all know our story, right? So we have three kids, and they're three and under, and uh, they're, they're tiring, but it's fun. It's fun. And, and we're potty training all three of them right now, which is like, you know? And it's, it's no wonder our neighbors, our neighbors won't come out and talk to us. We have three kids running around naked in the backyard. You know what I mean? It's no wonder we don't think they're very friendly. Uh, we intimidate them with our naked children. But we, for reasons that are, are probably obvious to parents, right, we're doing all three. One sees one sit on the toilet, I want to sit on the toilet, I want to take my diaper off. And so it's just become this you-know-what show, right, out there in the Lawson household, and it's fun. But what I've learned is I do X, Y, and Z and expect X, Y, and Z to happen. But our kids, they don't know how to communicate what they're feeling, what they need. I mean, we're trying, right? We're working with them on these things. How does this make you feel, right? We read the books. We we talk to people. We try to get help in different ways. But it's still, when you talk to a two-year-old and you try to reason with them, right? It just just doesn't happen. And so what I've learned about my own heart is there's this sense of control. And, And I didn't think it was a control issue until recently. But I want everything I create peace by doing this. I'm providing, I'm doing that, and therefore this should happen, and it doesn't. And I think sometimes, I think I exasperate my kids. I think I promote them to be more angry because I'm more concerned about them following dad's rules than God's rules, right? Y'all can probably relate to that. Don't touch this, don't do that. That's going to be a burden for me But am I really trying to look past my kids' actual behavior and more into the heart of what the real issue is? So I've been uh, convicted recently about how I need to be more understanding and I got to work on this control. Let me go a little deeper. Maybe, dads, on the surface, no one would know that you exasperate your kids because It doesn't look like abuse, or it doesn't look like yelling, or it doesn't look like any of that. And so what you're doing is you're disappointed at what life hands you, and we all get disappointed, and you just push it down, right? You just push those feelings down to the point that I think we get a little apathetic. You're not excessive disciplining, you're not yelling, but you get a little apathetic and you become numb. And I just want to show a little contrasting picture here of of what this could look like. I too often find myself on 
the left side of this. Right? You see a dad who's on his phone. I work from my phone so much. And sometimes I'm, I'm, my kids are right there. And, and this guy on the right, you know, he's, in, he's down on his, on his hands and knees and he's playing with his kid. And so dads, I really want to challenge you. People say this all the time. The life we have is short. And if you're not dealing with some of your frustrations, it might look like you isolate away or maybe you're physically present, but you're not really there with them. And a lot of this stems, I think, from dad wounds. You know, Pastor Tom brought us into this last week, right? This dysfunctional household abandonment, and we carry these things around, but we have to find forgiveness in our own hearts. There's tremendous hope and healing with God, no matter what you've been through, and some of it's hard. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32 says this, just a couple chapters back. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Paul is first concerned with you, dads, the anger in your own heart, before he's concerned about you passing it down and exasperating your kids. So Paul says, don't do this, but do this, right? But bring up your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I want to define discipline. We all have thoughts that come to mind when we hear the word discipline. Going to the gym every day, getting up and doing your devotion every day, things like that. But here's the definition of discipline. To instill in your kids the ability to restrain from personal desires in order to do what is right. Instill in your kids the ability to restrain from personal desires to do what is right. Now, that is hard with a two- and three-year-old, right? Amen? That, that is hard. But how do we start down this path, right? Even if it's hard. I want to give four ways. Four ways that we can help instruct our kids and discipline them. These are not, this is not an exhaustive list, but here are some things we can do. The first is talk to your kids about sin. As, as a dad, as a parent, if you primarily see the issues with your children as behavioral, you're missing the point. There is a sinful heart behind those decisions. Talk to them about sin, right? Get even kind of funny with it. Like, you're such a little sinner, you know? We, we do that sometimes. It's probably terrible parenting, but we do that sometimes. You got to laugh. You got to have some fun, right? But talk to your kids about sin and its devastating effects. We try to do that, and it's a joke. I'm not going to lie. It's a joke, but because they don't get it yet. But one day, I hope they do, when I say you, wanted, you don't want to listen to mom and dad because deep down you want to do life your own way. And that's not what's best. Second thing, be in the word. How in the world can you teach your kids, discipline them in the instruction of the Lord if you don't know the word of God? You need to be in the word. We have a Bible reading plan at Fox Valley Church. If you're not in the word of God, sign up today. You can email Emily. You can find us. We would love to help you do that. But you need to be in the Word alone and with your kids and apply it to your life, right? Be an example. Don't just be in the Word, but live it out. The third thing is repent when you get it wrong. Man, we, no one, not just men, women too, all of us, we do not like to admit when we're wrong, right? Pastor Tom shared something years ago with his wife Kathy up here. He said, when I know I'm wrong, I'm okay with you telling me I'm wrong. But when you say I'm wrong and I don't see it, then it's really hard to repent and confess. 
But we need to be quick, way more quick. Let's, let's drop the pride, admit that we cannot do this on our own strength, and when we get it wrong, repent. Say, I'm sorry, I messed up. I just did that yesterday with Emily. I, I said something, and I'm like, what in the world? Why would I say that? And then I texted her, and then we eventually, because she had left, and she came back, and we had a conversation. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm just point blank, sorry. Your kids will find out that you're not perfect, so start them soon. The fourth thing is have a vision for your family. Have a theme verse. You know, think about Joshua 24, 15, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Have some vision statement. I, I've, I've often heard guys, young men share, I don't want to be like my dad. What do I need to do to not be like my dad? Build a vision for your family. This is what Lawson's do. This is what our home is going to look like. Have something around your house that's going to remind you of these things. And Keep pointing your kids to trust in God's power, right? We can't do this in the flesh, but this is going to promote truth and holiness in your kids if you have a vision about what worship and, and church and being a Christian means and looks like. And also, let me just add one more. It's not in here, but let me just add to pray. I already said that, guys, pray with your wife, right? But, but just pray with your family. And in fact, you know, our family, we are such good prayers. I just, I just got to pat myself on the back. We have unbelievable spirit-filled prayer time. And our two and two-year-old and three-year-old, they are filled with the spirit and praying such elaborate, amazing prayers that I just wanted to bring you into my home. And so take a quick look at this video. Now, I, ha I have to say, when we pray, I'm usually not sitting in the corner of the room with my phone on, okay? <laughs> I just want to point that out there. This was a unique situation where I was trying to capture just a nightly prayer time that we have. Obviously, I'm being totally facetious, right? It is so hard to try to start these routines with families. And, and like different stages of life are going to present different challenges, right? Some of you are in stages where your kids are older, and, and it's just hard. Right now, we're in this stage. You just saw. That's what, that's what we deal with, right? And, and it's amazing, and it's fun, but it's really, really hard. And so we can't shy back as men to start these things. Do them, even if it's a joke. Do them, start it out, make it a priority, and see your kids slowly get transformed into the image of God. Men, again, I want to challenge us. We can't shy back from God's calling to love and lead our families. Starts in the marriage, but keeps going in the home. And let me just say this. When we fail at agape, when we cannot love our wife, when we don't love her the way we're supposed to, which is probably every single day, would you run, run to the throne of grace and find mercy and help in our time of need? Let's do that together, men. This morning, I want to close a little bit differently. Uh, I want to have a little panel of dads to answer a few questions that we have. So could you invite up with me Phil and Brian? Give them a welcome here. Uh, 
I got the expert dads here that can tell you everything you need to know. You know, I wanted to get some, uh, how do I say this, uh, experience, right? Right, as a young dad, I always want to look to seasoned veterans who have done this for a while. And so we got a couple different generations here, if I, if I may so delicately put it. And you guys have a lot of experience, and we want to hear from you. And so this is what I did. I reached out to some men in our body, and I said, revolving the topic of headship, of spiritual leadership, of, of being a dad in the way that God intended, what are some questions that you have, men? And so we want to address a few of them. Here was one. How can I be a God-fearing, manly man in a society and culture that has so acutely blurred the lines of manliness and pushed back traditional gender roles, including male leadership in the household? How do I do this without falling into sin? Brian, I want to turn to you first because you're, you're a men's personal coach, and I know you've thought deeply about some of these different things. What does it mean to be a Christian man, to be masculine in the eyes of the Lord? And so maybe you can start. How would you address this question? Well, I, I'm thinking of the song this morning, actually. So I want to give an encouragement real quick for married men, engaged men, and single men. The song said, culture or the enemy thinks they have us, hmm. right? What does Jesus say? No, he's got us. Hmm. Starting with that, I think is great uh, starting point. But practically, um, study. Study leadership. Study the fruits of the Spirit. Study uh, Paul's writings to Timothy and Titus. Get into the Greek a little bit. Um, find a, a, a mentor, a, an older guy. <laughs> with more experience, uh, but that you respect. Sit at his feet, learn, give him permission to challenge uh, you. Um, understand that being a leader is not about making all the decisions. It's about ensuring the decisions are made. Um, and lead yourself, lead yourself spiritually, lead yourself emotionally, and lead yourself physically. Start there, lead yourself first. Mm, that's good. What about you, Phil? Do you have anything to add to that? Well, I think sometimes we're so concerned with what society thinks of us, mm. how we dress, how we look, what we're doing. And society is now telling us what marriage should look like, and it's just totally wrong. We need to look at Scripture and what God says marriage mm. is and what a husband should be. That is so good. You know, I got another question that kind of talked about I'm, I'm almost embarrassed. Like, I, I want to do it God's way, but I feel like I'm going to be judged by people around me or even people who are Christians who are socially conditioned to view things in certain ways. But I love what you're saying, Phil, is, yeah, culture might not like the way that you lead your wife. But how does your wife feel about it? That's a good starting point. Does she feel loved? Does she feel led well? And then are there godly people speaking into your life who can, you know, affirm what's going on? That's really good. Okay, here's another one. How can men, this is actually along the same line of thought, how can men make sure they keep headship what God meant it to be? and not let themselves become this overbearing, dominant presence in the home. I think we see some men, right, kind of retreat and be apathetic for different reasons that we could talk a long time about, but other men maybe are taking on this idea that I need to be loud or, you know, this and that. So maybe, Phil, you could start out with that. What would you say to finding that line of, of godly headship but not being overbearing? I think mostly we need to just look at the model of Christ. Christ loved us 
and we're told to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So how does Christ love the church? How did he? How does he? He loves by leading. Okay? He doesn't say, okay, let's talk about this. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know, I don't agree with that. So yeah, just go ahead and do it your way. That'll be okay. Christ gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us and give us wisdom. And we need to, with our children and with our wife, sit down and lovingly discuss and be with them and come to decisions. That's really good. You know, I want to add something, too, to this. I think what comes to my mind is this idea of it's, you have to give up some of your own desires. And what I mean by that is oftentimes when God has called Emily and I to do something, a lot of them big things, job, a move, a house, those type of things, foster care, they're things that I don't even want to do. But I'm, I'm coming to Emily, hopefully in a delicate way, saying, hey, here's what I think God is calling us to do. It's not, I mean, it's really not demanding when it's something you don't even want to do, right? You think of this authoritative figure, here's what we're doing, and it's going to be good. Do you have something to add to that? Yeah. There was once when my wife was right. Uh, <laughs> but no, seriously. <laughs> Uh, I got to go home later. <laughs> but seriously, we were discussing it, and I had this path mapped out and figured out. And she guided me that maybe that's not the right path. Maybe this is better. And I needed to listen to her. No, that's really good. Yeah, that's good. Do you have anything, Brian? Yeah, you know, um, guys... Sit down with your wife, ask her, and discuss with her what you and her both think your leadership looks like now, and then also discuss what you think it should look like. You know, really hear her heart. Um, she's got a lot of good things to say. Um, you, you can't make anybody follow you. you. You can be the man that they choose to follow. Yeah, that's great. Your wife. That's great. That's really, really good. Here's another question. How do I lead my family in making decisions while still allowing my wife to have a voice in the decision-making process? I want her to feel valued, so I often just let her make all of the decisions. Phil? I kind of alluded to that before. First of all, the word allow is just totally wrong. I don't allow my wife to have a voice. She has a voice. She is one flesh with me. She's my partner. Okay, so I don't allow her to have a voice, but work together, just as Christ works with the church. That's good. What about you, Brian? Anything to add to that? That's pretty good. Yeah, that <laughs> that's is. pretty good. Yeah, th that is really good. We need to remember that. And, and I think, too, as a pastor, one of the things I've noticed is that as years go by, and husbands become less involved or apathetic, and that's one of the ways they can be, right, if they're not involved in any of the decisions, that I think 
the wife actually comes to resent the husband for not being more involved or not leading their family. So on the surface, it might look like a noble thing to just say, yeah, do whatever you want. Yeah, sure, do whatever you want. But I think deep down, that's not going to serve your wife well long term. Maybe you have to give up some of the decisions like where to go to eat or, you know, what to watch on TV. But when it comes down to what God is calling your family to do, your wife will want you to have a voice in them. Okay, here's another one. With regards to our kids, so we're shifting here a little bit to, as a dad, what are some practical ways to demonstrate my relationship with God and include them in my daily worship? What are some practical ways to demonstrate our relationship with God and then, but include them? Phil, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I think it's important. You mentioned the word exasperate. It's extremely important not to exasperate our children. Proverbs tells us to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is older, he won't depart from it. This isn't just scripturally. It means to look for the bent of your child, for the inclinations of your child. God created each person individually and gave them strengths and abilities and weaknesses. And we need to find those and then join them in developing those the way God intended the child to go. Okay? And involve them. Uh, we're so involved in out-of-church activities that we forget church activities. It's important to participate with your children in church activities. Journeyland, worship services, youth group, other church activities. When there's service opportunities, Involve your children with you in the service opportunity. Okay? Don't exasperate your children. Bring them along with you. One of the ways uh, to do this, I think, um, I teach financial responsibility. And I think involve your children at an age-appropriate level with your finances. Husband and wife should be budgeting together. There comes a time where you should bring your children into that to teach them. And Brad mentioned one of, I think, a very important thing during the message, and that is when you participate beyond time, you are teaching your children such a strong responsibility when you teach them to be on time. Mm. That's some good, really good practical thoughts there. Brian, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think... Um, involving teaching is hugely important. Um, two things I'm thinking of is um, if you have not been baptized as a, as a guy, um, get baptized. Uh, make sure your kids are in the front row or on stage with you if that's allowed. Involve them in the process of deciding that. If you have been baptized, tell them how you felt about it. Tell them what it meant to you. Um, but then the second thing, um, teach them how you do quiet time and then let them participate once in a while in your own quiet time. And then have them teach you how they do quiet time. Whatever age they are, two-year-old, let them teach you how they want to do it. Yeah, that reminds me of a really sweet song called Talking to Jesus, right? And bringing your kids into your time with the Lord. It's the best time for them to come in and be with you. That's really good. I also just want to add, just teach your kids to worship. Like, and, and I'm worship in all of life, right? We know that. Romans 12 tells us it's a, it worships obedience. It's an all-life thing. But teach them what it means to worship and sing, too. We have this morning, our kids woke up early, and we're just putting our hands in the air, singing in the kitchen during breakfast time. Teach your kids in the car. There's different ways uh, that you can do that. And I know I mentioned this earlier, Earlier, but 
don't just focus on the behavior, but try to get to the heart of where your kids are at. And I think that's going to be a great way that you can help train them up. We have uh, these bookmarks. And this bookmark, it says, what is God calling me to do next to love and lead my family? What I did was I put a bunch of them in the foyer. They're kind of on opposite sides are uh, the left and right of the foyer doors that lead outside. Uh, we didn't put them in the chair backs because this is only if you want to do it. We're not saying uh, you, you need to do this, but I would encourage you to take one of these when you leave today, write something down. Maybe it's after you have a conversation with your wife about how you can better love her, and I want to challenge you to do that. I want to invite everyone to stand. I just want to pray a quick blessing over you. First, can we just thank Brian and Phil for coming up here and Sharon? Amen. So good. So good. Father, uh, we just come before you, and and we just thank you, God. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for people who have gone before us, who can teach us and help uh, train us to better train our kids. God, we know and recognize you are working on us so that we can better work on our kids. And so would you help us recognize that and live some of this out this week? God, I pray for these conversations that got brought up to happen in homes this week, Lord. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. As you leave, remember that Jesus changes everything.